Thanks for your intro this morning. As Seb was saying, the last time I preached was about 10 years ago, so I feel like an NBA player, all-star, brought back from retirement. Even my brother's come along to hear me preach today. What a treat. (laughs) Has anyone been to Vietnam before? Has anybody crossed the road in Vietnam? Yes. Yes, the laughter, you know what I'm talking about. Because crossing the road in Vietnam is not like here up in Australia. It is so different. I reckon it's even worthwhile going to Vietnam just to cross the road over there because it's an experience you'll never forget. Because in Australia, what we do, we've got that little, you know, that little red man, uh, don't walk, the green man walks, and we just cross the road, simple, it works, bingo. In, in America, in Vietnam, that does not work because I guarantee if you do that and follow the little green man, the cars are just going to keep on going and the motorbikes are just going to keep on going. So there's a particular technique to walk across the road when you're in Vietnam. Right, so you get to the edge, you get to the curb and you stay there, take a deep breath, maybe a quick prayer (laughs) and then you walk. Now you walk confident. You walk slow and steady so that the motorbikes know how fast you're going so they can pace you, so they can go around you. You look straight ahead. Do not look at the motorbikes, okay? Do not look at them. That will sense your fear. But if you look at them, make sure you stare at them so that they know that you are in control, okay? Better still, you can even just close your eyes and just walk and just walk steady, get to the other end. You're there. Bingo. It works over there in Vietnam. Now, the thing is, every country is different. Like what Seb gave for those who were there at the start of the service, he gave some examples of different cultures, how they do different things. Every culture has their own way of doing things, and therefore, both consciously and subconsciously, it affects what we think is right or wrong, good or bad. Yeah? It affects so much about what we think things should be. Even within the same culture, generations, the older generation to the middle to the younger, everybody has their own way of doing things the way that they think things should be done. And the same thing, the same thing applies for Christians. It affects the way we think about church, how we do church, how a, how a sermon should be preached, how we should worship, how we should sing. It affects how we, um, our theology as well, you know? It affects our theology. It affects what sins we might think are more acceptable than others. It affects what things that we may be struggling more with Christ, uh, as Christians because of our culture. So I believe, therefore, that if we are not aware of the impact that our culture has on us, we are therefore not going to be prepared for, to be able to counteract the impact, the negative impact our culture has on us as Christians, yeah? So the question that I have is, what are we as Christians going to be struggling with because of the subconscious impact of our culture that it has on us in our lifetime here in Sydney, Australia? Or in Singapore, welcome Leong aunties to Australia for the wedding um, of Amanda coming up. So, what is it going to be? In Australia, is it rights 
versus grace. A car cuts in on us. What do we do? What are you doing? Get out of there. You should not have done that. Mate, go to Malaysia. Everybody cuts in on each other and it's all acceptable. Or what about um, being overzealous and need for justice and people paying for the mistakes? A society which is marked by litigation and suing. Is it loving people where we don't get anything back from us? Generosity, lack of emotional connection, pride, judgmentalism, thinking we are better than our other people. What is it? What is it that we're going to be struggling with the most? I believe the Bible tells us, it gives us an answer. So we're going to look in that in just a moment. But before that, please join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will speak powerfully through me today, the Lord, that you will convict us through your spirit, that we'll grow, go away changed, um, desiring you more, growing in a love for Jesus more. In your name we pray. Amen. So the, fo- the bulk of my story, I'm going to be focusing on the Tower of Babel. Now, the Tower of Babel comes at the end of a section in Genesis. Uh, it's in Genesis chapter 11. Just as a bit of background, Genesis is divided into a number of sections, as I just said. Uh, it goes 1 to 11 is one section. We get the Tower of Babel story. After the Tower of Babel story, it introduces the person of Abraham, or Abraham, and then Abraham features from chapter 12 onwards. Now, before we get into the heart of Genesis chapter 11, I just want to point out one interesting point, and it's found on Genesis uh, 11, first chapter 1, and if that's working, here we go. So it says, Genesis 11:1. 1, now the whole earth had one language and one common speech. Mm-hmm. But we look at the preceding chapter, chapter 10. 10 verse 5, it says, From these the maritime peoples spread out into the territories by their clans within their nations, each with their own language. Can we see that? It's not in chronological order. Now, that is not necessarily unusual in the Bible, but the reason why it is unusual is that all of the preceding verse chapters leading up to the the Tower of Babel story is in chronological order, and even the ones after are also in chronological order. So the writer has kind of just switched around chapters 10 and chapters 11, presumably so that we finish that section with a Tower of Babel story. Why has he done that? What is so important about the Tower of Babel story that he's seen fit to put it at the end of the section? Well, to understand that, we have to look at the uh, context of Genesis chapter 11. So uh, we know the story. God created the world. He created a good. He created a man to be rulers of the world under him. Sin came to the world, and from there, sin spread. Of that story, there are a couple of passages which I believe are really important for us to get our head around, for us to be able to understand the Tower of Babel story, and also for us to understand the question that I posed at the start, or answer the question that I posed at the start. The first one is this, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. I'll read it out. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground." So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. My question is, what exactly? So we're seeing here that God created man in his image. 
And we know that the image means that it's a reflection of something about God, but what exactly is it? Now, I've always thought that it was just rule and relationship. So we're um, rulers of the world, made in the same way as God, and um, we're creating a relationship, a unique relationship with God, which is true, and I believe it's part of it, but I do not think that that's solely what the main thing is when it says that we are made in the image of God. So what is it? Well, I believe the rest of the Bible tells us, gives us a bit of a hint into that. Now, there are a number of passages I could go to, but I'm going to go to one in particular, Romans chapter 3. We know this passage quite well. It says, oh, it's up here. I could just read it from up here. There is no difference between Jews and Gentiles. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, the converse applies to that, yes? For those who have not sinned, i.e. those before the four, the way we were created to be, made in the image of God, for those who have not sinned, they have not fallen short of the glory of God. Yep, makes sense? What exactly is the glory of God? Let's go to Exodus chapter 33. Now, this story is where Moses says to God, I want to see your glory. And God is going to show him his glory. But God doesn't say, yes, I'm going to show you my glory. What God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you so that my name will be proclaimed. I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion. So regardless of exactly how we define made in the image of God, what we can say is very safely that the way that we were created to be was to reflect the glory of God. In everything that that encompasses, his righteousness, his mercy, his compassion, his holiness, his love, everything is to reflect the glory of God. And now this is a very, very important note, so that his name will be praised, to reflect the glory of God so that his name will be praised. The second part that we have to get our heads around is the four now, with this, we know this passage quite well, where Satan comes and deceives uh, Adam and Eve. It's quite interesting. When I, read, when I read through it again, Satan, he doesn't really outrightly lie, does he? He kind of just tells some half-truths. So, so let's have a look at what is actually happening here. Um, and what the question is, what exactly is this tree of the knowledge of the good and evil? Let's get the facts right. So what do we know? So we know that God has this knowledge of good and evil. So God has this knowledge of good and evil, which Adam and Eve did not have. It gave them wisdom. Verse something. Can't say that. Six. Sorry, it's a bit small. Verse six, it gave them wisdom. Number three, after eating from the tree, they knew that they were naked. And number four, we know that sin just spread into the world after they ate from the tree. So what exactly does this tree signify? Well, now, after eating from the tree, as I said, they have the knowledge of good and evil, the knowledge of what is right and wrong, the knowledge how to make wise decisions, which is the wise decision between what is right and wrong, good or bad. It's something that God had, but they don't have. They didn't have. So when mankind, unlike God, when mankind is faced between the glory of God and reflecting all that he is versus the enticement of evil, 
Lust, that's why they knew that they were naked. The, the, the vulnerability that they had being naked. Lust, anger, murder, hate. What's mankind going to choose? Invariably, mankind's going to choose evil over the glory of God. They're always going to reject the glory of God. And we see that pattern happening from these verses onwards after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. We see this pattern going on where sin just gets worse and worse, but it's very insidious. It's just this slow, 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 slow kind of thing, and sin just gets out of control until we get to chapter 6, and it says, God looked at mankind and saw that no one was evil. There was not a single pure thought in people, and God regretted what he had done. And he wanted to wipe out everybody, but he didn't because of Noah. He said, saw Noah, and Noah was a righteous man. So he said, okay, I'm going to start again with this new Noah, like a new Adam. I'm going to start again with this people and see if he can get it right this time. So so, so we get the story of the flood where he wipes out everybody apart from Noah and his family. And then we get to chapter 10, okay, the chapter before chapter 11, obviously, (laughs) the chapter 10. And he says, and then we see what happens post-flood. We see the people spreading over the earth growing and being fruitful. We see a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 1, God's command. So things seem, going pretty, going, seem to be going pretty good. But it doesn't answer one question, does it? Has mankind got it right this time? Let's go into the Tower of Babel story. So the Tower of Babel is, uh, this story is split up in two sections. We've got the action in verses 1 to 4, and then we've got the consequences in verses 5 to 9. That's pretty small again. That's all right. And, yeah, so what happens? So this is the, the, the assumption is that post-flood, the group of people, they moved east together, together and, and settled in this place called Shina. And what they did... Let's have a look at what they did specifically. So what they did specifically, they said, let's build a city. Okay, let's build a city with bricks and mortar. And, and within that city, let's build a, a really big tower, a massive tower, so that they can achieve something and be proud of themselves and so that they can be together. Yeah? They can be together. Now, as I'm reading through that, I'm kind of going... Okay, that's not too bad, is it? Oh, seems pretty benign. Because look, what they're doing, building a city, that's kind of what we do, hey? If you're going to go into a civilization, you need to build a city to kind of be together. And a tall building? Tall be- I love tall buildings. Burj Khalif, love it. Sky Point Tower and the Gold Coast, oh, it's pretty good. But it's still pretty good, isn't it? Big towers, big buildings, they're a good thing. So they can achieve something, be proud of themselves. Yeah, but look, we kind of do that, don't we? Look at, like, look at Le- uh, Caleb's Lego animation. I'm going to go, Caleb, man, that's awesome. Good job. Keep it up. Be proud of what you've done. And so that they can not be spread out of the earth so they can stay together. It's a good thing, isn't it? Peace. No wars. It's a good thing. You see what the problem is? You see that I'm reading the Tower of Babel story through my eyes, through my culture. And therefore, I'm interpreting it in that particular way. So when we read it through the eyes of God, it comes out very, very differently. It's not this benign thing that is happening. Because what they are, in essence, what they are doing, from chap- what are they doing? They're saying, 
The first thing, they're just outrightly just saying, I'm not going to spread out over the earth. I'm going to, like what you command me, I'm going to come together. And we're going to create a fortified city. We're going to build things up. We're going to build a tower that reaches up to the heaven, whatever that means. But they're building something that says, I'm going to get to heaven myself. I don't need you, God. I'm not even going to give you the praise. I'm not going to give you the glory. That's what you wanted me to do. But I'm not even going to give you the glory. The glory is going to come to me. The praise is going to come to me. I am God. You are not God. I don't even care less about you. They're saying a really proud and arrogant comment. And God says, what does he do? God says, he comes down to them. I like it how it says it. So God comes down to them. He just goes, hey, look, what's, what's going on there? Fancy that. Look what you're doing. And he goes, uh-uh, this ain't right. You're going to try and build yourself up without me in the picture. You're going to try and glorify yourself instead of me. You're going to try and praise your name instead of me. That is not going to happen. So I'm going to do everything I can to thwart those plans. So I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to separate you across the whole world. And I'm going to separate you into different languages. Because if you have the same language, you're going to be able to unite. You're not going to be able to unite if you have different languages. That's what he does. Because you are not going to succeed in being God and you are not going to take the praise and glory away from me. Do you know the word Babel? It's actually used more than 230 times in the Bible. But only here it's translated as Babel. Everywhere else it's translated as Babylon. Everyone else is translated as Babylon. So let's just compare the times that it's used, the word Babel and Babylon, and you might see some similarities here. So we've got Genesis chapter 11, the one that we talked about, what they did and led to destruction. Dan, uh, the, the, the other main time that it uses the word uh, Babel or Babylon is talking about the Babylon nation. Now, the Babylon nation it was basically the nation. It was called the jewel of the nations. It was powerful. It was rich. It took over the southern kingdom Judah in 586 BC and, and took them into slavery or exile. It was run by the king Nebuchadnezzar at that time who was powerful. He made an image for people to worship him. And Daniel chapter 4 we got the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He goes to his balcony in his palace and he looks over his nation and he goes, look at this place that I have created, that I have created for my glory and my honour. Uh-uh, Nebuchadnezzar, that's a really bad thing to say. So what did God do? Straight away, God made him crazy, some kind of psychotic episode by the sound of it. And he made him leave the nation on the palace, went out into the, uh, to the grass or to the, to the wilderness, whatever, eating grass like an animal until he recognised who God was. You see that? You stand up against God, leads to destruction. The actual Babylon nation, not long after that, were destroyed, taken over by the King Darius of Medes and then King Cyrus of the Persians. Babylon nation, gone. You stand up against God, destroyed. Third time the word Babylon's used is in Revelation chapter 17. 
Now, this is the bab called Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes. She symbolizes all of the nations that stand against God. But this is different to say Babylon and the other ones. This is, this is somebody who's saying, I am openly defying you, God. I hate you. I'm even going to kill those people who serve you. She's filled with the blood of the martyrs. And God destroys her as well. You see the similarities between all of them? Same result. You stand up against God and don't give him the glory that he deserves and don't give him the praise that he deserves. You will be destroyed. You see why this passage, Tarabay, was at the end? Because it's not like just talking about murder or incest or all the other sins that you can think of which will shock you. No, this is at the heart of it. This is the root cause, the utter sense of defiance against God. He wants to show us how bad humanity has got in defying who he is and why he created humans in the first place. Let's have a look at our culture. Australia, good place to live, hey? Yeah? We um, are a developed country. We have, all therefore, all the features of a developed country. It's a safe place compared to a lot of the world. It, um, we don't have wars. We've got low morbidity, low mortality rates. We've got high quality of life. And that largely is due to technology, yeah? Technology has made a lot of these things possible. So I kind of just went online and just had a look at some of the newer technology that's coming out or has just recently come out. Um, I'll just read out a few of them for you just so that you can be prepared for the future. Robotic suitcase. Never forget or leave your suitcase behind you. It trails along you behind you like a little dog. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And what about an invisible helmet? This one's cool because people care about their hairstyles and so forth. They don't want to walk around wearing a helmet. So it's kind of like this little collar that you wear around your neck. So that if you say it looks like a... I don't think it looks great in the photos, but they think it looks pretty good in the photos. And what happens if you fall off the bike, it just explodes like a little airbag and protects you like that. Okay? Never going to look bad riding around on a bike. What about a Samsung safety truck? Okay, so at the back of trucks, they've got a big... I assume, uh, presumably Samsung has, has bought, bought this and created this. It's a big screen. Because often you can't see behind the truck when you try and overtake it. So it's projects, it projects the image from in front of the truck so that you can know when to overtake these cars. Quite smart, I quite think. And what about um, an auto brush? It's a little thing. It's not a toothbrush. It's a little, like a little, looks like a mouth guard with a little knob on the end. And you just put it in your mouth and you bite down on it give it a bit of a jiggle. Now, unlike a tooth uh, brushing your teeth, apparently it takes about two minutes that you need to do it. You can do this in, they say, 15 seconds or 30 seconds. That's pretty cool. That one's actually on, you can actually buy that one now, 1693 from mydeals.com with free delivery if you have some Christmas ideas. What about a bi-refrigerator? Anybody know what a bi-refrigerator is? No, I don't either. Okay, and what the last one. This one's a really good one. Custom hot sauce. You don't need multiple bottles. Mild, moderate, semi-moderate, hot, very hot. It's all in the one bottle. You just adjust a dial and then it adds the right amount of chili and pours it out. It's pretty cool, isn't it? We're a smart nation. Our country is self-sufficient. We have done a good work to make it the way we have. 
Our culture is not dissimilar to Babel, is it? A culture where we do not even see the need for God. And it's got the same consequence. Destruction. But there's hope. And you know the answer to that is Jesus. This is a diagram just explaining the way I'm thinking. So we got God, we... Or we rejected the glory of God. We weren't able to live up to his name. We weren't able to praise his name. But Jesus did. Jesus, who was fully human and fully God, he did that. And if we accept the destruction, that if we accept that Jesus took the destruction that we deserve for not living up to the people that we were created to be, if we accept that Jesus took that destruction, we too can live life. Live to be the people that we were created to be in Jesus. Does anybody know what the reversal of the Tower of Babel story is? It's a story in the New Testament. Yeah, that was actually a rhetorical question, but thank you anyway. <laughs> it's right, it's a Pentecost. Because this is pretty amazing, it's a Pentecost. Because where Babel, they try to create themselves into a nation themselves to reflect their own glory and praise their own name, and they drastically failed to do that. Failed to do that. So God just spread them out into the whole world, confused them multiple languages. We see at Acts chapter two, we see God through His Spirit descending. He creates a group of people speaking all different languages from all different nations. And, he's, and they're all doing the same thing. They're praising God. They're speaking of the wonders of God. Unified, multiple languages, multiple cultures, all unified in Jesus so that Jesus' name will be praised. Jesus' name will be praised. You see, there's this, there's this, there's this shift now that we got after Jesus because God is saying, Everything is now about Jesus. Why do you think the Bible says we should imitate Jesus? Why do you think the Bible says that? Because Jesus was human and he got it right. And God is saying, if you therefore be like Jesus, you are going to glorify Jesus. You are going to praise Jesus. And by glorifying and praising Jesus, you are glorifying and praising God. So God's saying, just look at Jesus and be like Jesus. Know him, love him. And we're living now in this time between when Jesus died on the cross and Jesus is coming back again. And we're still struggling with our old self, the self which kind of struggles to, uh, to live in the way that opposes God. We're struggling with that self. And this new self, which is created in Jesus, which is glorifying God in the right way. So we're struggling. Ephesians chapter 4, 22 to 24 says that. I don't have that on the, on the screen. But it says that. I could have actually used this passage to talk about uh, the image of God. Because what it says is that we're now putting off our old self with our new self. A new self, when it says, which is, which is created... In the image of God, in all righteousness and holiness. A new self which is created in the image of God, in all righteousness and holiness. And we're struggling. Do you know what we're going to be struggling the most with in our lifetime here, especially in developed countries? It's control. The answer to my question is control. To be honest, it's always been control, but even more so in a developed country 
control is such a significant, significant issue. Because a developed country is all about high standards of living, increased quality of life, which to attain that, it means more rules and more control, more control of your environment. Minimizing risks, minimizing uncertainty. The more developed you are, the more control there is, the more rules there are. And when that happens, God slowly gets pushed further and further out of the picture as we do not see the need for God because we feel like we're pretty self-sufficient. Last year, many of you know that uh, my family were over in Central Asia on a trip. It's Central Asia, the country that we were in, was a very uh, poor country. It's one of the poorest countries in the world outside of Africa. And you feel that when you go there, like the roads, they're totally different. So we basically got there and we were heading up north. Um, to get up north, it's just, there's, a, there's a massive mountain range. So most of the trip is just going through that mountain range. And firstly, the roads. Imagine going through Gorston Gorge, you know? You know how you go through Gorston Gorge or the Blue Mountains and there's just all these windy roads? That's largely what the roads were like. But the difference with Central Asia and over here in Australia is that in Australia, there's this nice barrier down the side to stop you falling off the cliff. And I'll just say Tajikistan. In Tajikistan, there's no barrier at many times, or there's a barrier which is just really, really low. And so, and even that, even, even to make things even more hard, the, the cars just go on either side of the road as well. You know that white line down the middle that separates left and right? That must just be for decoration over there. People don't follow that. And even seatbelts. I remember we got there, I started to put my seatbelt on, and the, the, the driver was like, you don't wear seatbelts. He didn't speak in English, but he just said, you don't wear seatbelts over here. So I just put the seatbelt on anyway. And then we went up north. Now we got to this tunnel. This tunnel, um, uh, we got to this tunnel and he said, he, he, he signaled to us to wind up the window. Okay, so I wind up the window. I don't really know why. But anyway, we wind up the window. Imagine you want to get from point A to B and, and there's a massive rock in the way. The quickest and easiest way to do it, just drill a big hole from one end to the other, yeah? This tunnel is so bad that on the internet, they call it the tunnel of death. <laughs> they say it's the worst tunnel or one of the worst tunnels in the whole world. I did not know that before I went on there. Thank goodness for that. So we got into the tunnel. He turns on the lights. There are no lights at all in this tunnel. And this tunnel goes for five kilometers. But even when you turn on the lights, you can't even see anything because there's no ventilation. So it's just covered in smog, this whole tunnel. So you're going through this tunnel. Yes, you're going through it really slowly, but it feels like forever. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, if this car breaks down halfway through the tunnel. I was in this like 1980s like station wagon kind of thing. It's pretty rickety. And we're thinking... If it breaks down, what are we going to do? If I get out of the car, another car's not going to see me because all the smog and they're going to hit me and I'm going to die. Or I'm going to get out of the car, I'm going to die of carbon monoxide poisoning. I'm going to stay in the car, I'm going to die of oxygen depletion. Either way, I'm going to die. Come across halfway across the world, I'm going to die in a freak tunnel accident. That is not what I want. You see, we don't have that problem here in Australia, do we? We don't go through the harbour tunnel and go, No, the water's going to break! I've got 
going to drown. We don't do that, do we? Because we trust the engineers that they've got everything all sorted out and we trust their safety of our country, which is a good thing, yes? And risk adversity on one level is a good thing, yes? But anything that is worldly has a negative side for us as Christians. And that negative side is not needing to see the work of God in our everyday life and depend on him. Three types of control that we're going to struggle with. The first one's pretty obvious. It's when we just outwardly, like the mother of Babylon, we just outwardly just do things that we want rather than God like rather than what God wants. Outwardly sin and rebel against God. The second one is slightly more subtle. It's controlling, it's us being controlled by the values of the world and our culture rather than what God values. So what does the world value? The world values that we work hard, uh, you have a family, you get a decent job, you save up money, buy a house, save up for retirement, get car insurances. When you retire, you can relax a little bit more, maybe go on a few more holidays. And then we apply this to our kids as well. Work hard, go to decent school, get a good job, uh, marry somebody nice, save up for the future, and so on and so on and so on. There is nothing in the Bible post-Jesus that says that we should value this as our priority. There is nothing, nor is it that we should just, nor, nor is it that God values purely us just going to church on a Sunday, maybe a Bible study throughout the week, maybe a prayer just before our meals, a prayer just before uh, the kids go to bed, and apart from that, our life looks exactly the same as the world. That's not what God values. What does God value? I've said it multiple times. God values for us to reflect the glory of God, to praise his name by reflecting the glory of Jesus, by knowing Jesus, by loving Jesus, by valuing what Jesus values. And I guarantee if you have that right priority in your life that Jesus is first in all that you do, I guarantee all of your life will look different. What you value, what you do will look different. How you think about what church to go to, where to send your kids, where to live, how to spend your money, how to spend your time, how you think about holidays, it would affect everything. How you think about people, people as being lost versus not lost and knowing Jesus. It affects everything. Everything The Bible tells us in 1 Peter that we should be aliens and strangers in this world. And there's so much truth to that. So the converse applies. If you do not think or feel like an alien and stranger in this world, there's a good chance that you are controlling your life yourself and not letting God control you. Which leads to destruction. Second type of, a third type of control which is even more subtle than that. It's when even when we make decisions with God's values in mind, we control and map out our lives so tightly that we leave very little room for God to work, to God to live, walking by faith. We plan and map out everything 
And we're able to do that because we're living in a country like Australia, which you can control your environment uh, to, to such a degree. Now, this applies to all of us. In particular, there's some people here who just find control so hard by innate personality type or who, find, um, who are very head-heavy or, or intellectual. You're going to find these things a lot harder. Tell me, what happens when you get anxious about something? When something doesn't go right, you lose a job, you fail an exam, you... Um, you lose something really important, lose a large amount of money, make some kind of mistake. What, what, what do we do? We stress. We get anxious. We do everything that, we can, everything that we can to try and control everything back, to bring it back to the pathway that we think that God wants it to be. And then one eventually, when it gets to that point, then we sit back and relax because we feel a lot better. The uncertainty is now gone. You know what Jade has um, taught, taught me? Jade has taught me quite a lot. In particular, what Jade has taught me is that whenever something goes wrong, what's the first thing you should do? You stop. Yes, pray. Somebody said pray, I think. Yes? Did I say? Yes. You pray and you stop and you go, God, what are you doing through this situation? What are you teaching me? Where are you leading me? And that's how we should approach life. Or what about parenting? This is um, a parent, so I'm going to give an analogy about parenting. What about parenting our kids? We get so anxious about how we parent our kids and how we control our kids in terms of turning out in a particular way. There are so many parenting books out there. Too many, I think. Parenting books are great. But with anything good, remember? What did I say? Anything good has a flip side. It makes us too consumed with this is the right way that we need to parent. Which again, what is that doing? It's controlling our lives. And it's leaving God out of the picture. It's us saying we have got it mapped out how things should be. You want to know the best way to parent? You just pray. You pray your guts out for your kids. You just pray and pray and pray that they will know the Lord Jesus Christ. And you yourself, you live a life that glorifies God in all that you do. And you show your kids what it means to be a follower of Jesus and why it's so worth it. And you do what you can to let your kids see the glory of God and leave it up to God from there. We, in our human culture and our humanness, we try and deal with problems the same way as the world and rely too much on our human logic and our own rational thoughts to make decisions and fix the problems. But this is not what God wants at all. He doesn't want us to find peace through our rational thoughts, probabilities, and things like that. He doesn't want us to find peace in that. He wants us just to let go and trust in him that he is sovereign and that he trusts in his promises, that he has promised that he will work for the good of all those who love him to make us more like Jesus Christ. Trust it and desire it. Look at the person of Abraham. Abraham, he was born in the, um, he grew up in Ur of the Chaldeans. And God basically said, he loved God. And God said, go here. Abraham went here. Go here. Abraham went here. He just followed God. Whatever God said, Abraham did. And then God said, what did he say? He said, I want you to kill your firstborn, your only son. Kill your only son. Abraham went to kill his only son. God stopped him. That is the faith that God wants us to have.
a faith where you just rely on God and you just pour everything you have onto God because you just trust and believe that He knows what is best. That is what He wants from us. Now I'm going to just finish with three um, application points. The first one is we've got to let go more. We've got to allow yourself to be more uncomfortable. It's been a bit of a theme over this year. John's been saying it. John has been saying it. We've all been saying it. You've got to let yourself be in situations that you are a bit more uncomfortable, make room for a bit more risk and uncertainty in your decision-making that leaves room for us to depend on God and his leading. It might really mean, as a parent, you read less parenting books. It might mean for those who are studying still, don't study for the last day. Just pray. It's God who decides what questions are in those exams. It's God who decides what you recall for the exams. Just pray and show that you trust in God. It may mean something more drastic. Going overseas. Go overseas to a totally different country. You don't know anything about it. Go over there so you can share the gospel. It may mean something on a smaller scale. Leaving Peno. The comforts. The security. Move over to Eastwood. Start a new church over there. There's many things that we can be doing, but it's so important because comfort and security, they don't help us live more for the glory of God. If anything, comfort and securities, the Bible says, riches, wealth, it draws us away from God. Do not forget that. Look at Israel. When did Israel grow the most spiritually? It's when they were down, when they were suffering. And so we see this pattern, this, in this ongoing pattern through the Old Testament. Israel started to get good and prosper, and they were self-secure, and then it felt, and everything went good from their point of view, but sin went worse and worse, and then God handed them over, and then they struggled, and then when they struggled, then they spiritually got strong because they repented, and they renewed the covenant with God, and they turned their life around. But then we saw that cycle happen again and again and again. That's exactly the same thing with us. You will know it. For those who have been in the race for a long time, you will know that God works through you the most when you are down, when you are struggling, when you are out of control. That is when God works the most in your life. Number two, actively seek the sovereignty of God in all things. I remember reading the letter that Joe sent around from the Mongolian missionaries from VetNet. I felt that. When I was reading through the letter, I was just thinking that. I was thinking the way she was writing when things went bad with the car. Pray God. Let's pray, let, let, let me pray to God. When things were going good, praise God. You see this pattern where she is seeing the sovereignty of God in all things when we were over in Central Asia before and when uh, the, 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 the electricity wasn't working. What do we normally do if electricity doesn't work? We get angry at the electricity company. We make phone calls, blah, 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 blah. What did they do? They just stopped and they prayed first. When Jeff and Beth were there and they were going through um, a, a difficult situation, and Jeff was called to some, uh, some authority that they were really scared. They didn't know why he was suddenly called to attend an authority meeting. I overheard them. I was just sitting there in my room, and I overheard them. And they just said, okay, let's just stop now, and let's pray. You see that? We've got to see the sovereignty of God in everyday life more. You may want to wake up in the morning this is a good thing to do. This is what I do on my way to work every morning. I wake up in the morning and say, Lord, show me yourself today. 
Show me the way you're going to work through me today. Help me see your sovereignty and all that happens, good or bad, so that your name will be glorified. Meditate on Romans 8, 28, 29, that God works for the good of all things. The third one, await and expect persecution. It's abortion issues, safe schools. It's just a start, isn't it? Our society is just getting worse and worse over time. And we as Christians are going to need to be called to make a stand or conform. I pray that we don't conform. But that's why he's given us a church. That's why our church is united. Not united from cultural reasons, but united in Jesus Christ. He's given us a church. And again, our church is not like a club. It's not just so that we can have friends. It's not so that we can just support each other's emotional needs and our physical needs. No, he's given us a church so that we can push each other more to stand more for Jesus and love him more and more in everyday life so that when persecution comes, we will not conform, but we will stand up and say, I love Jesus and I love God and he's more important than anything in this world. This world will pass away, but Jesus will stand forever. And that's what we're going to be encouraging and pushing each other to do. I'm going to finish up, finish up by reading out the words of one of my favourite passages. It's from Philippians chapter 2. It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God, some to be grasped, some to be held on to, but he made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, human being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. This is God we're talking about, being found in appearance as a man. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But therefore, therefore God, God exalted him to the highest place And he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Amen. Penelope's Baptist Church, be the people that we're created to be in Jesus. And let go.